This land is your land, this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. As I was walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that in the skyway, I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land, this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Ford Radio. 
Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Loba Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Mary Holden. Mary taught 45 years in schools as an elementary teacher. She retired from JCPS, Jefferson County Public School System, in 2002 after a full career and became a trained Waldorf teacher where she has worked off and on since that time. Mary Holden is devoted to bringing Waldorf methods into the public schools and worked most recently at Melbourne T. Maupin Elementary School. She is a Donovan Scholar at the University of Louisville, where she took a class with Dr. Ricky Jones, the class Politics and the Black Community, devoted to nonviolent communication. Mary Holden, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you. So Mary, you taught 45 years in schools as an elementary teacher. You taught 28 years in the Jefferson County Public School System. What schools? Wow, that's a list. Let's see, I started out at the old Roosevelt School in the city. It was 1975. It was the first year of busing. So actually, I didn't really teach for the old city school system. I taught, I came came in with busing, uh, busing desegregation back in 1975. And then went to J.B. Atkinson for five years, took a little pause to have three babies, went to Roosevelt Perry Elementary. After that, I was at Fraser Elementary. Um, then after that, I came to Bick Elementary for five years, and that was when I was back for good as a teacher, you know, after having babies. Stayed at Bick for five years and went to J-Town Elementary and then came to Bloom Elementary. And that sums it up. Okay. All right. But your teaching career at Roosevelt, Roosevelt was in those days anything but a traditional school. A much different philosophy than what the general JCPS school system proved of in those days. That fact demonstrates that your teaching philosophy was not traditional perhaps what many would consider based on a a liberal ideology? Maybe you can explain a little bit here. Well, I, I would even go further than liberal. I would say maybe radical. The Roosevelt School had a huge impact on who I became as a teacher, um, I, I'm probably what they call a born teacher. You know, I have always tended children being the oldest of six kids. And so teaching came very naturally to me. I have never been away from, from children. And when I got to Roosevelt, the teachers there were involved in the teacher corps and they were asking this essential question, what is education? And that, that probably permeated deeply into who I became as a teacher. Like, what is, what is education? What do you really want to know? The school was in chaos. The old city system was just, you know, not in good shape. The schools were, you know, the facilities were not kept up. Funding Uh, was an issue in those days. What? Money? Yes. Money was a big issue. Yes. Yes, definitely. But it didn't matter because this group of teachers got in there and looked around and realized the richness of the city neighborhood where it was located, the Portland area. And out of Roosevelt School, you know, was born the Portland Museum. And everything that came out of the Portland 
museum. Uh, all the aspects of Portland, the history, the culture, you know, the makeup, the geology, the river, uh, everything that had to do with the Portland area. And that planted a seed in me about what is education? What it, what it has to do with curiosity. So that influenced me very, very strongly. And so I would call that a radical idea in teaching because of it's contrast to what teachers are expected to teach in traditional schools. Yeah, that uh, Roosevelt experience also greatly influenced my, my teaching career. But you have spent years teaching at Waldorf School. Tell us yes. about that. What's, what's the philosophy behind Waldorf education? Well, Waldorf takes it to another level. <laughs> so I always knew that something was really missing in what I had kind of learned at, at, at the Roosevelt School and taken with me to other places. And in the 80s, I ran into Waldorf Education at the Curriculum Resource Center at JCPS. And I saw a chart on the wall for the Waldorf curriculum, and I was totally intrigued by it. And I was like, what? This is so radically different than anything that I had ever seen. And what it appeals to for me personally has to do with the, the role of the of imagination, the nurturing of imagination in children and building that capacity at an early age and how children are so imaginative naturally. And if you feed into that, you create something absolutely splendid and elegant and exquisite. And um, I became passionate about it and tried to do the best I could in the public schools with what I could patch together from reading about Waldorf education. So anyway, that's as far as the philosophy goes behind it, it has to do with that the child is really made up more than just an intellect. You know, a child is made up of, of their feeling life and, you know, their essential being. You know, some people might call that a soul, their soul. But in Waldorf, that, you know, it's, a, it's an important part to educate in a child. And that fed into my idea of justice and equality and what is it to be the human being at their pinnacle? What is what is an elegant and exquisite human being and how do we educate a child to become that model human being? So anyway, it's uh, Waldorf has it all fleshed out in a very beautiful way. So that was my idea of Waldorf education. And once I found it, it, it just felt, it fed me and be, it made me energized to become a much better teacher. So that's a, an anthroposophy theory. Who is the, the, the creator of that idea? Yes. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about the philosophy behind the Waldorf education. As I read more about Waldorf education in books, and I went to a uh, workshop at the uh, Rudolf Steiner College out in, in near Sacramento, California, one summer. And as I began to figure out what it was all about, I realized there was a whole lot more behind Waldorf education and the, what I have read about it. And what the underlying philosophy behind it is based on a philosopher named Rudolf Steiner, who was around the time of Maria Montessori. And there was a worldwide movement going on to look at the child in a more developmental way. You know, but at that time, this is probably the early 1900s, at that time, you know, children were beginning to survive more. You know, the, the, the birth rate, the death rate at birth was becoming diminished with medicine and more healthy techniques and stuff. 
and so people could invest more in their children. You know, they could actually look at their children and examine children, you know, and consider them something quite different than small adults. You have to remember that during the Industrial Revolution that uh, children were put to work in factories and nobody thought much of it. You know, it was horrible, but uh, something felt wrong about it, but they viewed children as little adults. So as time went on, there were people like Rudolf Steiner, Maria Montessori, John Dewey, who looked at children as a developing human being and not quite all here yet. And they called, the child calls for a different sort of education than just memorizing, learning the alphabet so they can read and, and read the Bible and the Constitution, that there was way more to education than that. So it gets back to that essential question, what is education? And so behind Rudolf Steiner's philosophy is, is all enveloping all of life. And so therefore there is a branch of his philosophy that informs something called biodynamic farming, which is the philosophy behind Fox Hollow Farm out in Crestwood, Kentucky. You may have heard of that. I think most people have around Louisville. And it is the philosophy behind Waldorf education. So once I began digging in my search, I found out about anthroposophy. And I have been in a study group for that, that a group of people read uh, Rudolf Steiner's writings. Um, I've been in a study group since the early 90s, so it's a long time to be, with, to be studying something. Now, Rudolf Steiner talks about anthroposophy, the theory, uh, learning that has to do with intuitive, human intuitive perception and spirituality. Yes. yes. So that, um, I, you think yeah. that that is uh, part of uh, human growth and development that is missing from traditional education. Yes, and I think intuition, it, it, there, it really has more to do with a threefold pattern that we, all, we should, you know, that we might all strive for. And it has to do with imagination, intuition, and then inspiration. And so imagination is the area um, that is pertinent to children. And imagination can be developed and nurtured, and it's something the child seeks out. It comes so easily to children. Albert Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. And that is really so true. It, it is imagination that gets us through this pandemic. The people who have great imaginations right now are the people that we're paying attention to. They're, they, you know, they have, they have ideas about the deeper things that we can hang on to right now during the pandemic, like a, a bigger picture of, of where we might go in the future. So imagination is really the way. Imagination is, if it isn't involved, when people who are scientists need imagination in order to develop theories and create experiments and, you know, uh, have that, that is hypotheses, you know, is, is imagination. So anyway, children have the, uh, the window wide open to imagination, you know, from birth, you know, all the way through childhood. And so I see that is Rudolf Steiner's idea or his, what he points out, and that informs Waldorf education. And so the idea is that while that window is wide open to feed that in children 
and to promote it and to do everything you can to guard children from outside influences that dampen the imagination. So the fact that traditional education does not focus on the development of uh, imagination, spiritual realities, does that, you think, explain the lack of fairness, justice, and righteousness in today's society? Well, that's pretty simplistic, but but it's probably, you know, I, I think it is, you know. Probably the enemies of imagination are materialism. And I think materialism is really the the, the, the cause of injustice. Uh, people become greedy and we let that happen. And we actually, in, in America, we glorify it right now. I truly believe that, that Americans, once we become more conscious to that, will begin to change more and more. And a lot of people are very conscious of that. There are a lot of people who recycle everything and don't go out and buy new things all the time and feed into that culture of materialism that we're so sucked into. Materialism is what markets to children. Think about like the whole Disney Corporation, you know, who they market to children and that dampens the imagination, you know, from taking, for in, let's just take one example. If you tell a child the story of, oh, say, Cinderella, and you go back and you find the original story of Cinderella, and you tell that child, uh, a child, the story of Cinderella, um, then the child has to work in their imagination to, to put together that story and to wonder and, and create their own pictures, uh, mental pictures or soul pictures, really, of the story. But if you show a child the movie, the Disney movie of Cinderella, now you are preventing that child from creating those pictures. Now the child can only think of those cartoon characters that the Disney animators have created. And so what you've done is you've dampened the child's imagination. You've prevented that child from deepening their strength and capacity for uh, imagining. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely it does. But but okay. you, you, Mary Holden, I knew you back in the days of Roosevelt before you became involved in, in the Waldorf teaching principles. You demonstrated righteousness and principles even back in those days. So where did that quest for justice and fairness come from for you? Well, you know, I think it's something that lives in everybody, but to be passionate and to act on it, you have to find some path for yourself. And for some reason, there, there is something inside of me that, that felt very strongly about that path. And Jim, to tell the truth, I have to give credit 100% to children. I'm able to listen to children, to observe children, to watch children and to allow children to inform me in my creation of my own curriculum for them. Um, I understood right from the very beginning that if you make school interesting and fun and you keep children curious all the time, that they will behave themselves, they'll be right with you, and it is a joy. I figured that out from the very beginning. And so that sense of justice really comes from children themselves. It's, a, it's an essential thing in everybody. Yeah, I, re yeah, I remember there, there was a, a philosophy back in those days. The teacher was the number one learner in the classroom. And that, yeah. That, that to, is true. Yeah, that pay, is true. Yeah, you have to pay attention to kids. So, Mary, you are uh, devoted to bringing Waldorf 
methods into the public schools. In fact, you've you've worked recently at Maupin uh, Elementary with the intent that intent in mind. But the Jefferson County public school system is devoted to teaching students high tech skills designed to prepare students for success in the 21st century. So they are a very goal-oriented organization concerned about increasing the presence of students meeting literary and numerical benchmarks as indicated by their the measures of academic progress map strategy. In fact, they are under a state mandate, the Jefferson County Public School System, to decrease the test score gap on standardized tests between mostly white middle-class students and the mostly African-American working-class students. So JCPS is an organization much concerned with high-tech academic learning, much concerned with math, reading, writing traditionally. How does the JCPS administration view the Wardorf Human Initiative perspective with its emphasis on spirituality, intuition, imagination? How does that work? Jim, I got to tell you the truth. I think I, I don't really know of anybody in the administration of JCPS who really even read much about Waldorf or really lifted off the layers to find out what was underneath it. The reason I have been, I have worked a couple of stints in the public schools to help bring the, the, the method you know, into the school system is because somebody had a grant and somebody picked this grant because they knew me or they knew a, a group of people that were, that were passionate about this method. And then they just stopped. They didn't ask any more questions. And I want to tell you for sure is that, that there is no attempt to bring any sort of spirituality into, into the schools or any sort of religion or anything like that. It all has to do with methods, okay? So maybe I can explain this a little bit. No matter what JCPS has for their, um, their goals, uh, there are still many, many people out there that are born teachers who actually watch children and let the child inform them about how they'll run the room. JCPS's goals can actually just be obstacles in the way. You know, and and people who are born teachers, and there's many of them out there. I have very young people who are out there right now trying to figure out this MTI. It's kind of it's so crazy. You know, they're they are looking for methods so that they can continue on the path of their own learning about children and bringing uh, curiosity and asking that essential question: What is education? What is it? You know, what is it down deep? They're constantly asking that question. JCPS is in the background. And the, the, the grand thing that is happening is that there are teachers. And they're, they're working at it. This very day, there's teachers in the Jefferson County Public Schools, just like I was, you know, uh, and you were. And no matter what the school system was handing you, you found out ways to get around it. What the Waldorf methods have to offer is a way to intertwine the arts in education and to make uh, the arts aren't a separate subject everything you do is artistic and every time you do things artistic or you you um, learn through through the, uh, the the media of arts you know the arts you know theater painting crafts 
movement, rhythm, music, singing, all those things, the arts, you know, you're lifting up the, the human mind. And anytime you're in that realm, then you have the capacity to develop your imagination. And so um, that is, that's really what uh, my goal was to bring it into the public schools because it didn't seem fair to me, once again, this fairness and justice, that only the children in a little private school out in Linden could have this method of education. Even though I work with the Waldorf School and I try to work to, to build it up, my ultimate goal is that it's accessible to all children. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of emphasis on STEM these days, science, math, history, social studies, and my wife, for example, who spent many years teaching art in the Catholic school system, was at times enraged over that because some principals wanted to exclude the arts. So bringing the arts and the kids' uh, natural imagination and creativity back into the system, I, I think, is, is a certainly worthy goal. Let's change directions here, uh, Mary. Yes. You have recently taken classes with Dr. Ricky Jones, Politics in the Black Community. Yes. Dr. Jones is the director of University of Louisville's Pan-African Studies. Yes. Does what you learned from Dr. Jones explain your devotion to civil rights and your perception to uh, the Breonna Taylor demonstration, your, your participation yes. in that demonstration? Yes. So let me, I have to give you a little backstory on this passion, okay? When I was at uh, Maupin Elementary, I was horrified at resegregation of the public schools because you and I both uh, taught in the 70s when desegregation landed, okay? And it, that seemed like, wow, this is going to work. And, and it was working very well in many schools, and it just seemed like the way. And then somehow, when I, somehow, Jim, I got off the train. And when I got to Maupin, I went... And when I got there, I went, oh, this is way bigger than uh, trying to um, bring Waldorf methods into the public schools. I have to know more. I have to know how I got off the train here and thinking that things, some problem got solved. It hadn't been solved at all. It had gone in the other direction. I was, um, uh, well, uh, let me say that Maupin is full of wonderful teachers working very, 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 very hard. And uh, the children there are just delightful, but it is not what uh, we had ever imagined back in the 70s that the school system would look like. It was segregated. So I decided I would get on a, a roll and, and start reading and looking at things. And I kept seeing Ricky Jones, Dr. Ricky Jones's name places, and I saw him on uh, at write editorials in the paper, and I saw nasty letters in response. So. I started writing him emails and telling him uh, how much I, what he had to say was the truth and to, to keep the faith, Dr. Jones, and, you know, and he always responded and said, thank you, Sister Holden, and that was the end of it. And I just went, you know what, I want to spend time with this man. I, I would love to do that. So I knew that from an old friend, Harry Jacobson Beyer, that you could take classes at UFL for free. You, you became something called a Donovan Scholar. And so I... I after you turned 65. After you're 65. Yes, excuse me. Yes, yes. As a senior citizen, you're right. Um, thank you. And so I finally finagled my schedule so that I could take a class with him 
exactly a year ago. So exactly a year ago, I went to U of L and took this class to spend some time with this this man who I admired so much, who was saying things that just felt like I, I wanted to know more. I wanted to spend lots of time with him and to hear what he had to say. And I would have to say that I couldn't have. It was an inspired decision to take this class. The class had 50, uh, 50 people in it. Five were senior citizens, and there was maybe oh four or five, six white people in the class. So it was a real, real honor to be in with all these young African-American kids who just uh, admired Dr. Jones and were alive with uh, political talk and excited about building a better world and angry about what was going on and they were just you know it was youth it was you know college students and dr jones did not give his opinions in class which was really kind of cool instead he was kind of a taskmaster with the reading and it was about politics in the black community and the rise of black power and of course there's a lot of holes in what i knew and you know i read diligently and and read a million other, not a million, many other things on the side too, because it really got me kind of jazzed up. But in class, he he would get the kids talking, and then he would play devil's advocate to their culture and their life, trying to get them to take a really good look about what was true and what was false in our world. And he didn't say things, he just asked questions of them, and they would squirm and they would talk and every single class, there was at least two or three really good belly laughs where the whole class laughed together. So anyway, that really enlivened me and charged me up. And one of the messages I got in that class, Jim, was that it was not uh, up to me to fix black people. And, you know, I realized that that was one of those white fragility moments when I realized that that was something it was just something I had not examined in myself was I a person that thought I needed to fix black people and he said your job is to work with white people and I Jim I gotta say my response to that was man I don't want to do that white people are mean (laughs) and they're prejudiced Dang, I don't want to do white people. It was kind of like you got given a job, and, and I was like this whiny person, you know. And But I just took it in, and I thought about it. And then fast forward just a couple of months, we get the pandemic, okay? So I'm paying attention, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. And then we get the pandemic, and then the Breonna Taylor uh, murder happens. And my daughter texted me the story it had been in the courier journal okay but it was just this little kind of lightweight little article that really the the pandemic was happening it was big and the the story about brianna taylor was dismissive and i didn't perk up and my daughter texted me a link to an article in the atlanta paper that laid it out about how she was murdered and i just sat up and i went what what? This happened in Louisville so quickly, I began to scour uh, the archives of the Courier-Journal and, and WFPL investigative arm, and I'm not finding anything in Louisville that's, th- so this was like in April, 
that I'm not finding anybody in Louisville that's talking about this Breonna Taylor case. So I'm, you know, perking up, perking up. So this is something that I followed right as soon as I was alerted to the fact that this happened. And so it just grew and grew and grew. And um, it's, it's, it's touched me deeply. Yeah, so uh, I ended up with, with half a master's degree in history from the University of Louisville before my wife fired me, but a very similar philosophy. And I realized the Black Power Movement asked white people to go into white communities and educate the white community on racism and anti-racism. And, and, and Braden totally agreed with that for that idea. So, yeah, I had to change my thinking about how to, to, to help the, the black community in, in those, uh, as a result of that history. So, here we are now in the middle of a, really, a, a revived civil rights movement, uh, Mary Holden. And so you, along with Sister Julie Driscoll, David Horvath, Dottie and Bob Lockhart, Brad Castleberry, participated in a sit-in August 20th on the lawn of Daniel Cameron, Kentucky's Attorney General. It's clear the intent of the sit-in was designed to pressure Cameron to complete and release the results of the investigation of the local Metro Police event that took the life of the unarmed black lady emergency technician, Breonna Taylor. All of you were cited by the police for trespassing, but you, Mary Holden, you were the only one arrested. So I assume you were arrested for uh, malicious netting? That's what you were doing. What was your intent here? Well, first of all, let me add uh, Phil and Peg Shervish to that list of people because there, uh, there were, and, and there was a huge supporter team there. I mean, so there were people standing at the curb too. So there was just us that sat on the lawn, but there was also there were, you know, uh, there were people who who were on the edges too of that of the situation. So it was it, there was a lot more people involved in this. Let's see. We talked about taking this action. This action actually was an idea uh, from Dottie Lockhart. And she was recovering from knee surgery, and all of a sudden she got this brilliant idea and passed it around. And when I heard it, I went, oh, I, this is, I'll do this, you know. So we talked, we had a nice big talk ahead of time on Zoom about, about what our commitment was to it and was everybody, you know, we, we, there's a possibility we'll get arrested because the last group had gotten arrested and charged with felonies. And so we talked about everybody would be free to stay as long as they wanted to do, if they wanted to be on the curb, they wanted to stay on the lawn and leave the lawn once the police gave the orders to vacate the lawn. So anything, uh, everybody was free and honored for their participation in it and whatever they were comfortable with. So we established that right from the very beginning. I, myself, and Dottie both were committed to being there for the full hour. And both of us were there for the full hour. So if being arrested was part of it, then that's that, that was going to be part of it for me. Uh, Dottie actually uh, got up to leave, and she had three or four more minutes to go. And what she did is she walked very, very slowly for three to four more minutes till she left the lawn after one hour. I myself... Uh, they came over to me and asked me to leave one more time, and I had like three or four minutes to go, 
And I, um, they said, well, are you leaving? And I said, uh, well, I was intending to stay the whole hour. And with that, they arrested me. I just sat. I didn't get up to leave. So that's, I guess that's why I got arrested. Um, I was prepared for it. So, and I knew I had support. So that was part of it too. Oh, okay. So you, you didn't intend to get arrested in order no. to make a statement. No. I no. see. My idea was to sit there for a whole hour. Hmm. And so, no, no, but, you know, Jim, the truth is, is that me getting arrested uh, amplified the situation. You know, now all of a sudden there's this contrast that the, the police have arrested and taken to jail a 68-year-old lady for, you know, I was actually mending, you know, doing my mending on the lawn of, of Daniel Cameron, and yet the the policeman that that sprayed the bullets into Brianna Taylor's apartment is walking around free. What? That is some contrast. So me getting arrested amplified that situation, and I was uh, happy to see that happen and ha and more than willing to do that. But the intent was to pressure Daniel Cameron to speed up the investigation of the Brianna yes. Taylor event. Yes. Yes. So you advocate for justice for Breonna Taylor. Does that justice include the dismissal of Louisville Metro Police Officers John Manningly and Miles Cosgrove, as well as the prosecution of all three officers, Brad Hinkinson, John Manningly, and Miles Cosgrove, that were involved in the shooting of Breonna Taylor? If so, how do you see that? I'm glad you asked that question because we talked that over ahead of time. And, you know... This has to do with more restorative justice, Jim. These are the, the uh, asks of Breonna Taylor's family. So the question becomes to Breonna Taylor's family is, Breonna is dead. They lost, they lost her. So what is it that would repair the justice to them? And this is what they came up with. And you know what? I honor that. I can't say what would repair the justice for them. Who am I to say something like that? They're the ones that get to say that. And the this family. is what they've come up with. The family, you're, you're saying the family should make that decision. Yes. I, how can I make the decision about what will repair the justice? Who am I to do that? I support them and their request for what it is that will restore the justice to their family. And this is what, what they have come up with. And I honor that. 100%. Okay. So above maybe arresting the three officers that were involved here, at least prosecute, prosecuting them, what structural changes would you like to see implemented in the Louisville Metro Police Department? Well, my little three-hour stint at, at the jail was an eye-opener. And I have been reading about this concept of defunding the police, which actually is a, is a complicated, it takes a lot of explaining, you know, to explain the uh, defund the police idea. But as I looked around and I saw the other people that were being booked uh, along with me and the dehumanizing experience of going to jail, and I looked around at the other people around me and they were so distraught. They were crying, men crying, women crying, distraught, just, and I thought to myself, you know, social workers could be dealing with almost all of this stuff. How many people there really needed some sort of like, you know, being handcuffed, 
and you know being handcuffed to a chain link fence you know who you know this doesn't this isn't right these are the the whole system it's not the individual cops in my mind it's the whole system we're spending a fortune on law enforcement and we're asking police to do things that they are not trained and equipped to do and they're just after being trained to be an actor in a video game now they're at they're they're being asked to be social workers out on the streets this isn't work it's not working okay it's time to change it's time to take a real good look at this whole system and see what we can do better we could spend our money a whole lot more wisely and achieve a much more humane end okay but the current demonstration occurring not just in Louisville but all across the country the African-American community is asking for more than just reform of the police department. What kind of economic, healthcare, educational, well, you've already talked about the educational changes, but housing changes, would you like to see implemented that would demonstrate justice for the African-American community? Well, I could go on and on about this one. <laughs> I think maybe one way to go at it from the very beginning would to just take minimum wage and double it, double it, and have the government subsidizes the small businesses that this would be a hardship on until we get people making a decent wage, a disconnect, healthcare from work. You know that's that that's not working. Everybody should have healthcare. What kind of culture or civilization do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a culture where some people are really rich? while other people are, no, that's not working anymore. People are suffering and sick and poor. And we are learning right now what happens when you put lots and lots and lots of people in poverty and then you overwhelm them with a virus, you know, a pandemic. And so you add one more layer of overwhelm and this is what's happening. You know, it's, uh, this is gonna keep happening over and over and over again. So I think Barack Obama said something about anybody who's working a full-time job should be able to support, you know, support their family, you know? So if we at least doubled minimum wage, I think we, that would be a good start to everything. Yeah. So the demonstrations have brought about some reform, Mary Holden, but it will take policy changes in order to implement structural economic reform, the kinds of reforms that you're talking about here. What kind of forces are necessary in order to pressure the political leadership to change policy? Yeah, well, I'm going to, to amplify what I've heard from Dr. Ricky Jones and many, many others is we need real change. And what we need to do is ask every single person that runs for office, is this person going to offer real change? I mean, if, I, if, if doubling minimum wage is real change, what sort of politicians who are running for office right now uh, are offering real change? You know, Charles Booker offers real change. Listen to what he has to say. He's offering real change. Okay. I'm not, I don't feel the burn on Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders offers real change. Elizabeth Warren offers real change. I'm just throwing a few little names out there of, of people who are really talking about real change in the structure of what we're doing and rethinking about, about how things might be way different and way better 
and you quit putting patches on things. Band-Aids, yeah. So, Mary, we have to say, at this time, we here at Solutions to Violence and Forward Radio, WFMP, uh, we do not endorse any candidates. So, as our guest, you're you're willing to make that statement, but we, we cannot endorse or oppose candidates. So, uh, we have to... And, the demonstrators are saying the protests are mostly peaceful and that Trump and McConnell are ignoring the violence perpetrated by police against African-Americans. So where do you stand on this conflict here, Mary? First of all, the demonstrations and protests are peaceful. I've been watching the uh, live feeds of people who are taking their iPhones out and, and narrating uh, what's really going on and they're not violent. And yes, there are places like Kenosha where uh, the looting has happened because they're in a they're in a state of overwhelm. And every single the whole the whole the whole the whole world is is in a state of overwhelm, Jim. And and every single time something happens now, no telling what's going to happen uh, in response to this this feeling of overwhelm. The shooting of the the man in you know seven times in the back you know those police did that shooting Jacob Baker three minutes yeah with within three minutes of getting out of that their their cop car they got out and within three minutes they had shot this man three seven times in the back in front of his kids it that is overwhelm okay and every single time these things happen you're going to get the crazy 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 you know uh, the the real violence and stuff, but these peaceful protests are a different thing. And I got in my car and drove up and down the streets of Louisville from Broadway to River Road. And I started at 7th Street, okay? And I went up and down the streets and I would invite everybody else to do the exact same things. To ask yourself, is Louisville uh, in a state of riots and violence and looting? And the truth is, no, there's this small square down by the courthouse. And it's small, it's a tiny little place that has been inhabited by the peaceful protesters. And I have tried to get that word out to people, you know, that I know on social media, that there are no riots going on in Louisville. There is nothing crazy going on. COVID is, is crazy. You know, that that is something that has got uh, everything very quiet right now, but but there's not riots going on. Yeah, I remember I went to one, I thought was a demonstration at uh, 7th and Jefferson, and actually there was there was a barbecue going on there. Yes. <laughs> there were, people had their grills out and they were like fixing dinner or something. So I, I, I do know that the, the first two nights there was some violence and some uh, vandalism. But I don't think that's occurred since then. So uh, yeah. some of the ads that are being produced by political uh, politicians that are running for office, I don't see that. So you know, hopefully the demonstrations will, will remain peaceful. So the latest... Go ahead. Jim, let me say, can I say something? Sure. Um, is that, is that uh, peaceful protests and demonstrations work? If you really look at the, the data on that, there is a professor out of Boulder, Colorado, that wrote her dissertation on does how what is the difference you know between violence, violent war, 
and peaceful demonstration as far as getting, achieving the goals. And she's really charted it out. I wish I could quote her name right now. You may know it. But the truth is, is that peaceful demonstrations and nonviolence really does work. It, and it is increasingly more so as human beings become more conscious. Yeah, uh, Corey Lockhart was on our program, quoted that research, and I'm sorry, I, I can't remember her name yet, but uh, it was quite telling in terms of the effect that peaceful demonstrations have uh, on change. Yeah. So, Mary, let's let's talk about the, mar the March on Washington here. Uh, it's been dubbed, Get Your Knee Off My Neck March. Drew tens of thousands of people. So, after thousands have spent months protesting in U.S. cities across the country, with a presidential race coming up, seems the words of Dr. Martin Luther King ring true now, more than any time in recent history. Said Dr. King, referring to the 1960s civil rights marches, quote, we are rendering a great service to our nation. It is not a struggle for ourselves. It is a struggle to save the soul of America. It feels like the struggle for the soul of America is occurring right now here. In our city, Mary Holden. It does feel that way. It feels like we're like the epicenter. And the death of Breonna Taylor has unleashed some sort of power. What is it about Louisville? You know, the why did it happen here, of all places? But it does feel that way, doesn't it, Jim? Yeah, yeah. And it looks like with, it, with the presidential elections coming up pretty soon, like in 70 days or so, it is going to be a fight for the soul of America. And depending on who wins this presidential election, uh, it's gonna determine the direction uh, that we're gonna take. Yes. And l let me say something to you about the presidential election and becoming so tense about this, is that I am not so sure, and I, and I know that you're not pushing candidates, but let me say it more in, in these terms, is that of course we, anybody, to me, that cares about real, oh, I don't know how to say this the right way. Let me see if I can uh, uh, express this. Um, we have to ask the question, do either one of these presidential candidates offer us real change? I think that the level of focus might be to find the politicians who are running for office that are, that are offering real change and to put your force behind them. And because I think that that is the path. I don't know if putting your all into these people who are not advocating real change is, is really, um, in, in my opinion, uh, the way to go. Real change meaning what? The kind of things I was just talking about, doubling the minimum wage and not connecting healthcare to work and really rebuilding our society so that the rich and the greedy aren't honored and held up as heroes and the, the, the forces of materialism that have just gone unchecked. We have a lot of work to do. Sure. So, Mary, you're a grandmother with grandchildren. Uh, you're, you're a semi-retiree teacher. Where do you go from here? Do you... Do you plan on participating as, as a political activist in civil rights movement, peace and justice organizations, going to run for political office, maybe Jefferson County Public <laughs> School Board? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Oh, well, thank you for asking me that, Jim. But uh, I, uh, I'm expecting a uh, new grandchild in February. And so my intention will be to support that, that baby being born in, in any way I can and to support my, uh, my other two grandchildren and help out in any kind of way with uh, supporting them. And I will probably uh, go back and do small things at the Waldorf School if I can be outside. I'm 68. I don't need to be around COVID. Uh, my philosophy the whole time, and this is, this is probably my life's work, is to work with children. Um, I think it's a very powerful thing to do. My motto, and I picked this up from a wonderful teacher named Neil Kinnerk, is uh, feeding the revolution one child at a time. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Absolutely, yeah. I have something, if you're, if you're interested in me reading this, I have written a manifesto. I don't know if you read that. I tried to post it on Facebook, and I think it's in the Leo. I, don't, I haven't read the latest Leo, uh, but they were going to publish that. But I'm happy to read that for you. It's not very long, but I wrote it before I went to sit on Daniel Cameron's lawn. Uh, because I asked, my question to myself was, why am I doing this? You know, why really am I doing this? What moved me to go sit on Daniel Cameron's lawn, okay? And so I woke up in the morning, and uh, in my journal, I wrote this. So are you, would you like me to read this? Absolutely. Okay, so this is called a Granny's Manifesto. I live in a white neighborhood in the city, the same house for 43 years. Next door is an apart in an apartment lives a young woman who works at a hospital. She works 12-hour shifts and wears scrubs to work. When she comes home in the evening, she looks weary from work and glad to be home. I have started calling her Brianna because that is what Brianna Taylor wore to work when she worked her 12-hour shifts. She must have come home weary from work and glad to be home too. I imagine my neighbor on a well-deserved day off going out to dinner with her boyfriend and coming home to veg out in front of the TV with a movie. But what I cannot imagine is a quasi-SWAT team in plain clothes with a backup of other cops using a battering ram to burst in her apartment while one of their team fires indiscriminately through a curtained window at my white Brianna next door. These things don't happen in nice white neighborhoods. And yes, there are drug dealers in my nice white neighborhood. This story needs to get out there. If those complicit don't tell it in a timely manner, then people and the internet and social media will piece it together bit by bit. The timely manner would have been in March. Those complicit are the judge and detective who generated the no-knock warrant, the chief of police, the FOP, the mayor, and Daniel Cameron all have kicked the ball up the street. Black lives are beginning to matter here in Louisville, Kentucky. Daniel Cameron, I have no idea how your mind works that so young in your life with so much education and drive that you are not moving way faster on this case. And yes, you have kicked the ball up the road too. We're supposed to be waiting on the FBI now. Put out some transparency now, today. Tell the story and what you've heard of it. Justice for Brianna is waiting. You know, Mary, Jamie and I have 
uh, produced this program for two years. We've we've put over a hundred guests on our program in those two years, and every guest that appears on our program, we learn something. So we have learned quite a bit from your uh, participation here today, Mary Holden, and we really we want to say thank you. So, but we are out of time. Listeners, we're, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Mary Holden, former Jefferson County Public School teacher, former Waldorf Elementary teacher, and political activist. Mary Holden, thank you for your participation. You're welcome, Jim. All right. Our program will be repeated Tuesday at September 8th at 8 a.m. and again Wednesday, September 9th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. We will place the Solutions of Violence program that features Mary Holden in our archives Wednesday, September 9th. To listen via our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org, scroll down to the program archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Mary Holden. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. You may respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we are Jim Johnson and Jamie Millen, your host for Solutions to Violence. Our technical assistant has been provided by Carolyn Books Johnson. We leave you now with one thought. Change to me is not about what one individual does. It's about what we do when we join together and understand that none of us is that none of us is expendable and that we can make the change we need. A quote from Lobel's own Carla Wall. Thanks for listening. Came shining and I was strolling and the wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling. was chanting, this land was made for you and me. This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Passing, but on the other side, it didn't say nothing. Hey, that side was made for you and me. This land is your land.